to, I'd like to inform Tyler that uh, he's actually aging more quickly than I am, <laughs> because right now I'm 51 and he might be 30, 37. Oh my gosh, that. And then, uh, <laughs> so right now he's a certain percentage of my age, but when I'm like 70, he's going to be closer to my age percentage-wise. Therefore, he must be aging faster. If you can dispute that, you feel free, but um, that's just, this is the facts. I just want you to know. Uh, Yeah. So a few weeks ago, I mentioned this maybe once before, but I'll be filling you in uh, in weeks to come about what happened in this event. But Drew and I went to a thing out in uh, Denver called the Q Conference, which was uh, getting a a gathering of uh, believers mostly to talk about uh, with, with some of the leaders in different sectors of, this, of society, what's happening in the church? What are the big issues? What are the toughest issues that we're facing? And just to wrestle through those and hear different perspectives because Christians, believe it or not, have different points of view on how to apply what uh, we see in the Scripture. Except around the gospel, there's a lot of variation. So how do we work through that? So we're, uh, we're at the conference, and, and Drew, I had come in late to one of them, and Drew had gotten us a, ta- a seat at a table up front. And I walked down, I saw him down there and got down and, and it was Drew and, and then an open chair and then this other couple and some other people. And so uh, I briefly said hello to the people next to us. And then uh, at the break, uh, or during, actually during the, the talk that we were listening to at that point, Drew leaned over and he goes, that lady is, is a member of the British Parliament. I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I was like, you know, so I was trying to take that in, and she's just a completely normal lady. You know, she didn't even have a big wig on or anything. <laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that the most, you know, intense and, and deep question that we asked her was, do you have to wear a wig? That shows my level of uh, interaction with people like that. But it was really interesting because she was just such a normal person that we were sitting there beside, and we got to know him and visit with her and her husband, and uh, her her name is uh, Baroness Stroud. Uh, and so we were in this conversation with her and sat with them through the rest of the day. Uh, it was just, it was, when I first sat down, I, I didn't recognize, you know, who was beside me or the influence that this person as a believer could wield in her country. And then, you know, as I, as when I got to know who she was and, and that was about that fact, I was like, wow, this is, I was just surprised because she was so under the radar, if you will. And I want, what I'm re- the reason I'm bringing that to you is that when I sat down to look at the life of Hannah, who we're looking at today in the Hebrew Scripture, Hannah tr- came across to me exactly like that. It just, she just didn't jump out to me. I have never spent a lot of time with her and studied her and just the little bit we have about her life. And then as the week went on, it just... I I was just amazed at the things that are packed into this very short episode in her life that we see and what it teaches us about who, how to follow and live with God and then what it is that he's doing, the, the, pig, the incredible picture that this shows. So there's so much more that I'm going to even share with you. I would encourage you to take a look at this. We're going to be in 1 Samuel. And if you want to turn there, it's just right at the beginning of the, of the book. So we're in this series, Running with Giants, and we have men and women in this series, and Hannah is one of the women. I think this is the fourth in our series. 
And this, uh, the, the, the main thing that I want to ask you to interact with as we look at this episode in her life is to see the journey that she goes on, this transformation from suffering to strength, from just, and we'll describe it, but the incredible suffering that this woman faces to strength. And there's, there's an incredible transition that she goes through. And I want you to see it and think about it and, uh, and I hope be inspired by her. Uh, and I, uh, the personal thought, the, the, one of the things that came home to me that I, I want to share with you before we get started is that um, Hannah moves from being controlled in many ways by her culture. Uh, she's, she's a product of her society in so many ways. And she steps out of that in an un, just tremendous way to align herself with the purposes of God. The difference is she's got this very self-focused, normal societal uh, worldview that she's living under. And she steps out of that and aligns her whole self, inner, inside and outside, with the purposes of God. And it's, it's tremendous. This is a tremendous story of what God does with her and what she does. So let me, uh, let me set up the story real, real quick. Hannah lived about a thousand years before Jesus comes on the scene. And she lives at the end of the period of the judges. So the, the Hebrews are in the land. They've, they're out of Egypt. God has been using these judges that he's been raising up in different parts of the country to lead them and show them where it is that, how, how they need to move forward. And so uh, Hannah shows up at the very end of that period, just right at about a thousand before Jesus. And uh, the people have just begun to ask for a king. And so she is going to be a very uh, important part of that process of uh, the first king and the first two kings coming into uh, rule over, over Israel. Her husband's name is Elkanah, and she is a part of, uh, Elkanah has two wives, so this is a polygamous family that she's in. And one other thing that's pretty important to note about her is that uh, she's barren. She, can, she has not been able to have children up to this point. So hopefully that sets the stage for what's going on just in general. But let's read the story. We're going to start in uh, 1 Samuel uh, 1, verse 4. So on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, that was they would go up to the temple as a family, the whole horde, all of them that, that were in, included in a pretty large family would go up and sacrifice at the temple. He would give portions to Peninnah, that was one of the wives, his wife, and to, to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, that's Peninnah, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year after year. And as often as, as they went up to the house of the Lord, it says she, but that was, means the whole family, and Hannah, she, this woman used to provoke her. And therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? 
After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, this is where they were, uh, Hannah rose, and now Eli the priest was sitting at the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed, and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she, and she vowed and she said, Lord of hosts, if you indeed will look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord. I'll give him to you all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. All right, that's the, that's the beginning of the story. And three things that I want you to see that as we move through this, obviously we're going to talk about the suffering that this woman is going through. And then we're going to see this transition to humility where she, I'll, I want to tell you right now, but I'll, I'll save it until just a minute from now. And then she moves to strength. So from suffering to humility to strength. So suffering. I think if you were listening or reading along, you saw that Hannah is for good reason in a lot of pain. She's, she's suffering in this. And it, it helps, I think, to bring out what was going on in that social scene because it's, it's hard for us to understand the intensity of the need that she felt to have a son for us. Because though all, many of us want to have children, and, and that is great, we also realize in our society, or, or I think typically believe, that children are at least somewhat optional. You don't have to have children. There's at least some, I don't want to offend anybody here. I don't need to do that now. I can do that later. But we, we've mostly understand that you don't have to have a child. You don't have to have a son. But in her society, that was different, uh, very different. We have to kind of get inside her mind just for a moment. Uh, one thing, and I think you all could under, see this from the, from the surface, is that to have a son or many children even, was to have financial security because she lives in an agrarian society where each family provided for themselves and then would sell if they had excess. And so you would have, the bigger your family, the more staff you had and the less you had to pay people, right? So now, to that, that may not make, to us, it may not seem like you may not want to hire your son to be in your business. I don't know. But in that case, it was essential to do that. And so she was feeling this in the idea, the sense of just wealth, that she needed sons for that purpose. Now, you, most of you know that if you've looked at the Bible for very long. Another thing was that, you know, they didn't have any kind of uh, retirement plans back then. Your children were your retirement plan, especially if you were a woman, right? So you're, Penina, she's the other woman in the story. Her children aren't necessarily going to take care of Hannah, Right? So she needs to have children to take care of herself if anything happens to her husband. So super important in that. Then, of course, there's the sense of motherhood. She desired to have a child, which is perfectly normal. Sorry, I'm kind of losing this little thing here a little bit. Uh, perfectly normal to have that kind of uh, desire for motherhood, and that's driving her as well. So these factors are important, but here's something that I think maybe we gloss over and aren't aware of, and that's this. In those cultures, you could have a, uh, a group of people that were just over the hill that happened to be more fertile, and then and one day they decide they need your land. And so they come over the hill, and if you don't have enough young men to defend you, what happens to you? 
Slavery. Okay? So what do people think about a woman who can bear warriors? They like those women, don't they? Don't you, wouldn't you want to be the hero who had the children, who could defend the, the country? Of course you would. This is about in, these are intense, real things that we cannot understand right now in our current comfortable culture. But she was feeling this intense need, intense need. So there was this societal, cultural, personal pressure she was feeling. But then you add this other component to it, Penina. So did you see year after year, Penina was just, just making it miserable for her. How much fun would that be? Not fun. This, there's, they, call, they call each other rivals in the family. And by the way, in the Bible, there are situations where there is polygamy, but none of those that are told about are ever successful or encouraged in any way. These are always nightmares. I'm not going to tell you why that might be, but uh, anyway, that, it, it should be obvious to us that it would be stressful. But in this case, uh, we don't want to take the fact that it existed to be something where we're, we're in, in any way the Bible is encouraging that. It's, it's the culture. They were so affected by their culture. It was so important to bear children, so important to be protected. So th- this is what's happening. Well, so she has Penina just every year, just making her miserable. But then her husband, and you got to read carefully about Elkanah. Elkanah is a bonehead. And I'll tell you why. And I personally can relate to him pretty well. Uh, so one of, the, one of the things that Elkanah does is, uh, is he, he comes to her and he takes her suffering personally. So he sees her not eating. He sees her struggling. He sees her miserable. He's in, and if you're married, you know, you, you know when your spouse is, is struggling and suffering. And, and these are pretty outward signs. I mean, she was visibly struggling year after year. And Elkanah says to her, Hey, Hannah, aren't I as great to you as ten sons? Now, if you're a mom, you know that's dumb. It took me a minute to understand. But what he was doing was he was taking personally how she felt and what she was dealing with, and he was turning it on himself and, and number one, he was misunderstanding the issue in saying, hey, aren't I great? I do all these good things. I'm, prov- I'm a provider and all this. But what he's actually doing is telling her, not only are you failing as a mom, but you're failing in making me feel like the man. Right? And all of you women have, who are married have probably figured out that one of the most important things you can do is make your husband feel like he's the man. In fact, that's my main counseling thing. I don't know, <laughs> darling, this may be... Just make him feel like he's the man. Things are going to get smoother. <laughs> so she probably knows that in this culture, but, but if you just sink into her shoes and his shoes for a second, he has taken personally the fact that she is emotionally struggling with something else and then coming down and saying, shouldn't I be a blessing to you? And she's... She's like, okay, well, I'm failing at that too. I'm, and he's going to be displeased with me. And what happens if he's displeased and I can't have children? I mean, she's, she's in a really tough place. Well, uh, here's the other thing he does. It's boneheaded. 
Did you notice it says that he, he loved her? And so what he does to show her that is that in this very solemn moment, they didn't waste the food, by the way, of the temple sacrifices. In the solemn moment of distributing what was left from the sacrifices, he gave her twice as much as the whole family of Peninnah got. That sounds really neat, doesn't it? Unless you're Peninnah, and, and Hannah knows this, and all this does is cause more conflict. I mean, he's just stirring the pot. But he thought he was doing the right thing. He, you know, he just was missing it. And so I'm telling you all this because I think it helps us understand more about where Hannah's coming from. It's not just she, needed a ch- she wanted a child, and I think that's often how we read this. She just wanted to have a son so bad. But it's much different than that. And she's, she's just miserable. But this suffering that she was feeling and dealing with, it was very real, led her to the best next step that she, that she took, which was to humble herself, to really uh, begin to align herself with what God is doing in the big picture. So that's where we come to this idea of humility. And in verse 9, it says that Hannah rose. So they're at this meal. This is apparently a big gathering where uh, she's at, at Shiloh, where, where the temple is. And she's been asked by Elkanah, why is this happening? Peninnah's given her the evil eye. You know, who knows what else is happening in this social setting. But you can almost picture it. You can almost see this. Hannah, it says she gets up. And, and there's a commentator that I read who said that this is like, this is like the turning point in the story, that instead of listening to him and, and trying to figure out who she is based on what Elkanah says or what Penenna says or what the culture says, this moment of her standing up and separate is, is almost figuratively her separating herself from those things. And she goes to the temple, and that's why it says that the priest, Eli, was, was sitting at the temple gates or temple door, and she goes there to pray. And if you remember the story, she, she's, uh, she prostrates herself and in, in, is so uh, out of sorts that Eli thinks that she's drunk. So she rises up and she goes over here. And in the words that the scripture says is that, that she is distressed and bitter and afflicted. That's really low. We've had moments like that distressed and bitter and afflicted. And she is, that's as low as, I think it's describing as low as you can get. Uh, And listen to her prayer. Her prayer reflects the humility that, not only her body position, but the prayer. Uh, She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed, this is verse 11, look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. So what she does here, she, she communicates this really important theology about who God is and how she understands him. Look at what she does. She says, O Lord of hosts, which basically means in this misery, in this uh, abject suffering that she's feeling, Lord of hosts. In other words, hosts means you are over all powerful things. You are the top, you are the creator, you are all good, you're righteous and holy above everything. So she's putting him in his place in her heart and mind, okay? She's saying who God is. 
And then she makes this incredible assumption because of what she knows about him in the next words that she says. Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servant. In other words, the God of all things cares about the very individual part of this one woman's life. This, we're going to, all the way through these stories of these giants of the faith, we're going to see that though God has an incredible story for the salvation, for the gospel to be revealed, he also cares about the small things that each of us are dealing with. It's all the way through the scripture. He's, he is who he is above all things. And Hannah tells us this. And that's why it's so beautiful to pray in the model that she gives us. God, you are holy. You're righteous. You're above all things. You made all of this. You gave us everything, every good thing. And I know you care about me. And I know you care about this thing that's cultural. Do you see that? This wasn't essential. It was cultural. But God cares about this thing to her. And she, she reveals this incredible theology in one sentence. Even part of a sentence. But she continues to say, you know, I'm afflicted. Look, and she says three times, I'm your servant. Right? So this morning we've been talking about our friendship with God, which is true. And what she is saying is that, God, I know you care intimately about me. You care as a friend does. But still, I humble myself before you. I put myself on my knees before you because of who you are. And then she does this thing that if you've had any kind of Sunday school before, you've heard. She makes what sounds like a trade with God, right? She says, well, God, if you'll do this, then I'll do this. Has anybody ever been in one of those situations? Uh, probably most of you guys in your teenage years were in one of those. Uh, <clears throat> we've all faced that kind of thing. That's the way we took it. it we take it on the surface as like an emergency prayer. God, if you'll do this, then, then I'll do this, and this, then everything will be great. We'll make this trade. But did you notice it says she prays, the, the prayer that she prays is a vow. She's making a vow. She's not making a trade. And there's a difference in that. And that how you have to under, also understand what she says in that. She says, please give me a son, and if you give me a son, I'll give him to you. Right? If you give me a son, I'll give him to you. And she says, and it may have sounded a little weird, she says, and he'll never cut his hair. Right? That was the last line. Well, the reason for that is the way you became a priest was you were of the tribe of the Levites. Right? So Eli was of the tribe of the Eli, of the Levites. But the only way to become a part of the priesthood and, and never fully officially, but you could serve there, was as a Nazarite. And the Nazarite vow included a couple of things, but one of the most important ones is that you never cut your hair. And so that's why she says, I will give him to you for his entire life as a Nazarite part of the priesthood. So she's not saying, if you'll give me this, and I'll just have a son, and then I'll fall, you know, everything will be right. She's saying, please give me a son, and I'll put him in your service. So do you see how she's starting to align herself with what God is doing instead of what she wants? This is the humbling of herself and her desires. They're still real to put those things, her desires, how she's been wired, where she is, into what God is doing. 
And, it's, and that's powerful, uh, you guys. I mean, have you thought about your life and the things that are most important to you? The things that we turn into idols, the things that are so important to us? That, that doesn't mean they're not important to God. But can those things, can who you are be turned to be about what he is doing instead of just what we want? Is that possible? And she, this is such a beautiful example of that happening. I mean, from absolutely crushed and, and under this suffering to humility to aligning herself with everything that she wants with what God is doing. So uh, this, is what, this is the process, but you see then uh, she moved, she, this prayer, if you looked at it in the scripture, and I think when we look at it on the wall, I, I think you'll be able to see this. But the first prayer that she, uh, that she prays is just in lines in the scripture. It's just written out normally, like, like in prose. Oh Lord, I'm afflicted, please, and I'll make this vow, etc. But the second prayer, which we're going to read just a little part of, is a song. It's written out in the scripture in verse. And so if we saw it in the Hebrew, which we're not going to do, because none of us can read it, but it, it would show the, the way that it rhymed and the way it fit together, because she said this on purpose to God in a very special way. So this is a triumphant prayer, and we won't be able to see it here, but I'll read. I'm just going to read four verses of it to you, and you can begin to see her strength from her suffering. And Hannah prayed and said, or Hannah sang, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted. Her horn meant her, uh, her equity. Everything about her that was valuable sang to him. Exalts in you, God. My mouth derides my enemies. In other words, my enemies have no effect on me. Because I rejoice in your salvation, in what you are doing. And she doesn't even know the half of it. There is none, here, this is such an incredible statement. There is none holy like you, Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And then she says something generally to people. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Humble yourself. For the Lord is the God, a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. And here's this critical uh, line, verse 4. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. What she does in these little words, and she continues them in a very similar way, is she reveals one of the deepest, most important characteristics of God and of the gospel. And you see it in verse 4. It says, the bows of the mighty are broken and the feeble bind on strength. The weak become strong. The things that we thought were powerful and what we're all, we're all committed to and, and subject to are not what God is after. And the, the meek, the humble, the lowly are the ones that he will lift up. And this is a part of the way that he works. This is what God is doing. And it, it's, this, is, this sets off the God of the Bible so much from anything else you're going to read in any other religious text. And feel free to try. Look, 
look and see how different this is. Because what she's going to do, think about this for a minute. From weakness, she's going to give birth to this little boy named Samuel, right? Samuel of whom two books in the, in the Bible are dedicated to, two long ones. By the way, if, if you're written about in the Bible, you're, that's a pretty big deal. If your name's on one of them, you know. Uh, Samuel's one of those guys. And Samuel comes in and he learns to serve. And then Samuel is the guy that God uses to select the first king, Saul. And I don't know if you remember, but the way it describes Saul is Saul is great. He's good looking. He's just this stud of a guy. He's a great leader. And Saul goes like this, right? But Samuel then, after the people see that what they thought they needed is not what they needed, God leads him to pick out David. You remember that scene? where he goes to, to David's house and all the other sons are lined up. And like, David, uh, you know, he's just, he's the littlest scrawny guy. He's out taking care of, you know, we've relegated him already. The weak become strong. And who is in the family line often mentioned of David? Jesus. And how does Jesus actually do the work of bringing us into relationship with God? The strong become weak. He comes out of heaven. He humbles himself, puts himself on a cross, and the weak then become strong. So I just want to close. I want to just read this to you. And she doesn't know she's a part of this, okay? Isaiah comes after her about 400 years, and Jesus is about 600 years later. So from weakness to strength. This is Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a a sheep that is before his shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth. Therefore, God says, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Hannah, from weakness, Brought, Saul, brought Samuel, David, Jesus from suffering to strength. Let me pray. God, I thank you for the amazing story of this woman. Lord, in the suffering that she was in and the broken, messed up family that she was in, uh, in the culture that she faced, she stood up and, and turned herself to you and to your purposes. And Lord, now we read about her son. Uh, in your word today. We, we read about her, and only in these few lines. And we thank you for that. Uh, God, thank you for who you are and that you care about us and our immediate need, though it may be absolutely cultural, earthly, personal, and selfish. You care, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you guys have a great afternoon. Some-